The following program is intended to provide general information only, and its host, Tim Decker, recommends that you always seek competent professional guidance for financial, legal, and tax advice, as everyone's specific needs are unique. WHP Talk Radio 580 now presents Financial Freedom with Tim Decker from ISI Financial Group. A full hour of sleep well at night financial guidance from an experienced financial advisor. Talking about This is your financial show, Central PA. Financial Freedom on WHP Talk Radio 580. Well, good morning, everyone. Tim Decker here with you. Welcome to another hour of all things financial here on Financial Freedom. Thank you for making us part of your Saturday morning. Uh, Right after the first break here, we're going to uh, be welcoming a very special guest, a very good friend of mine, Mr. Jonathan Clements. Uh, Many of you know the name. He wrote a column for the Wall Street Journal for many, many years, and he continues writing uh, many books and is an excellent, excellent consumer advocate and uh, uh, provides a lot of very, very good ongoing financial education through his blogs and his his newsletter. So make sure you stay tuned, and uh, we will bring Jonathan Clemens up right after the first break. Well, the volatility in the market continues, which is a good thing, believe it or not, because as I've reminded you in the past, volatility is nothing more than the variance below but also above the long-term trend line which as we know going back for centuries the long-term trend line if you're part owner of thousands of companies throughout the world in a beautifully diversified portfolio that long-term trend line has been very rewarding with market returns anywhere between nine and ten percent now obviously investors would not have been able to capture the same returns because obviously there are expenses and some taxes associated with investing. But the point that I'm trying to make is this volatility, which has finally returned back to the markets, does provide some excellent opportunities to capitalize through dynamic rebalancing and or also by continuing to add to your investments. Let's say you're a participant in a 401k plan where you have money going uh, into your account every paycheck. Well, obviously, when markets are down, it allows you to buy more shares at a more attractive price, thus providing you with higher expected returns. The The opposite is also true. When markets are up and volatility has uh occurred above that long-term trend line by, again, consistently adding to your investments, you will buy fewer shares at higher prices. And at the end of the day, that's what investing is all about. You want to buy more when things are at a lower price. Thus, that's when they have higher future expected returns. And ideally, you want to buy fewer when they are at higher prices. So by consistently investing, It provides you with the opportunity to allow market volatility to be your friend. 
And then, like I, I mentioned, for those of you that have a process in place where you are dynamically and in real time rebalancing using your dividends and your capital gains and any excess cash reserves that you have, which is what we do for our clients ongoing regularly, thanks to our advanced technology, it allows us to buy more shares of whatever asset class or funds happen to be down the most. Because remember, buying into what is down the most is the asset class that has the higher expected return going forward. So yes, volatility is back. And uh, year to date, uh, when you look at the Russell 3000, which is just a, a broad barometer for the U.S. stock market, the market as of now is basically flat. For the week, markets here in the U.S. actually ended up about a half a percent, but year to date, we're basically flat. In case you didn't hear, it was in the news uh, this past week. The Securities Exchange Commission has finally proposed new regulations. And it's many, many pages. And it's going to be looked at for a 90-day period of which they will take comments, suggestions, etc. But one of the key things in this new proposal is that they are looking to no longer allow brokers to use the word advisor. And that doesn't mean that there's not other titles that might not sound appealing, but at least they're making some steps to finally, finally, hopefully help you as the consumers understand that brokers and registered representatives, um, insurance agents, they work for the companies that they represent first. And in this proposal, unfortunately, there is nothing outlined that is going to require brokers and registered representatives to be a required fiduciary. So we'll see how this unfolds, but uh, the long and the short of it is, as it looks right now, you are still going to be required, as you always should be, to be on the lookout for your own best interest. And as I've said on many, many times, the single best thing that you can do when working with any financial advisor, representative, whatever, is download that questionnaire that we have for you on our website, Again, our website is isifinancialgroup.com. That's isifinancialgroup.com. And on the homepage there, in the bottom of that uh, homepage, there is a place there that you can download for free a consumer-oriented financial fiduciary questionnaire. And if you will print that out, print that out, and make sure that if you're working with a financial advisor ask them to complete that send it to them ask them to complete that in writing and to sign the fiduciary oath because if they complete that you're going to find out are they truly 100% fee only are they truly a 100% fiduciary at all times and you will be shocked 
unfortunately, to find out that although you may have thought or you were hoping that was the case, in talking to many individuals who indeed have used that tool to get some answers, they unfortunately discovered that who they were working with or who they were considering working with would not sign that fiduciary oath of uh, uh, representing that they will constantly and consistently always put their best interest first and that they absolutely have nothing to sell in the form of anything that would provide them commissions at all. One last thing, caveat emptor. I recently, uh, here in the Lancaster area, somebody had uh, asked me, had mentioned a local firm and wanted my opinion on the firm. I did some quick research. I went to their website and on their website, on the homepage, they were really emphasizing and they had it plastered all over their homepage that they were a fiduciary, they were a, a fee-only advisory firm. Well, as I've encouraged all of you to do many times, if you will look at and request, which you can also get online, all registered investment advisors have something filed with the Securities Exchange Commission. It's called Form ADV. And there's a Form ADV Part 2 brochure that outlines any and all services as well as how they are compensated. Well, I'll make a long story short, when I downloaded their ADV, read th through it, guess what? They were not a fee-only advisory firm. In fact, it clearly stated in their form ADV that there are numerous conflicts of interest because the advisors that work at the firm also sell insurance, sell annuities, generate commissions, as well as receiving kickbacks from other solicitors who send clients to them. So my point is, it's imperative that whoever you're working with, do you and your family a favor. Make sure you do your homework and look things up because there's plenty of information out there that there is no reason that you cannot know what you need to know about who you are working with. Okay, we're going to take our first break, and when we come back, we are going to bring up our special guest, Mr. Jonathan Clements. We'll be right back. Financial Show Central PA Financial Freedom on WHP Talk Radio 580. Welcome back. Tim Decker here with you. Financial Freedom. And again, thank you, as always, for making us part of your Saturday morning. We'll do our very best to make this time for you uh, something that can be practical and beneficial for both you and your Loved ones. Okay, we have a special guest with us, Mr. Jonathan Clements. Hello, Jonathan. How are you? It's great to be on your show again, Tim. It's good to have you. Thank you. I uh, also 
want to again thank you for the great time that you and I and Dina and Lucinda had at that very nice place where we had a quiet dinner. It was nice catching up and thank you again for your your time and great company as always. Ah, well, it was fun to catch up in person. Normally we do these conversations on the phone or on the air. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. So uh, for those of you who may not be aware, uh, Jonathan Clements is one of the most respected names in the world of finance. Uh, for years, he wrote a column in the Wall Street Journal. He has written numerous excellent uh, consumer-focused books on financial topics as well as a couple other topics and uh, I've gotten to know Jonathan over the years and I value very much all you've done to help individuals and I know that you've got a lot of followers on your blog but why don't you just kind of give us a quick update before we get into some topics here as to what's been going on in your life since we last uh, talked here couple of years ago uh and what you're doing with your books your website and anything else that you think would be of help to uh our listeners so it was uh you mentioned him you know i uh, i used to write for the wall street journal i uh, i was at the paper for 20 years in total most of that time as the paper's personal finance columnist i also mm -hmm. spent six years on wall street working as director of financial education for a major bank uh, but in the past two years, I've been out on my own, and mostly that's meant uh, running my own website. I run a website called HumbleDollar.com. I blog there. I have a stable of writers who uh, uh, pen blogs for me as well that I put up on the site. Also, at the heart of the site is a comprehensive money guide that covers pretty much every financial topic out there. I used to right. put the money guide out as a book. Uh, but a couple of years ago, I migrated all of the content onto the web, so it's there and freely available. Um, if you've got some topic you want additional information on, you can go to my site, HumbleDollar.com, and find out more. And then, as Tim also mentioned, I, also, I, um, I write books. I've now done nine books in total, eight of them on personal finance. Uh, my latest book is a book called How to Think About Money. It came out 18 months ago, and it's really a philosophical look at money and what it can do for you, and it touches on issues like money and happiness and what our increasing life expectancy means for how we manage our money, how we should think about risk, and so on. And then I have a new book coming out. It should be in September, and it's called mm -hmm. From Here to Financial Happiness. And what it is is a 77-day plan for getting your finances in shape. It'll teach you about money, get you to explore what you believe about money, and help you to figure out what your next financial steps ought to be. Yeah, I uh, we had Jonathan as a featured guest speaker at our client event uh, a few years ago. I think it was two, maybe three years ago. Time flies. But anyway, um, that's when you rolled out. I believe that was the first year of your money guide, and uh, we purchased a copy of that as a gift for all of our clients, and I got tremendous feedback on that guide. And so... I would strongly urge everyone, now that Jonathan uh, has chosen to make all of this information available free online, go to that website, HumbleDollar.com, and that guide is right there, and as he said, you can search for any topic, whether it has to do with Roth IRA, estate planning, 529 plans, you just plug it in the search box there, 
and all of the data that's in his book he regularly updates now live and you don't have to buy the book anymore so i i just think that's an awesome service that you have made that available and uh, uh i just uh commend you for all of that and all of the other writings that you do uh ongoing so let's just talk a little bit about if we we may uh, i had mentioned before i brought you on that uh finally finally after quarter after quarter after quarter the markets you know just kept going up and up and up finally we've started to experience some volatility on the downside now we know that volatility is an upside thing as well but recently uh at last uh, we've experienced it and one of the things you had talked about or one of the questions in your most recent news letter had to do with you know do u.s stocks finally face a great reckoning what what really are your thoughts on that jonathan and what can you share with us uh, and encourage individuals to think about and consider well tim it's really a good news bad news story uh the bad news is u.s stocks are undoubtedly expensive i mean over the past uh almost 40 years now we've seen valuations trend steadily higher uh the stock market, if you go back to the early 1980s, was dirt cheap. Uh, today, pick any metric, and you cannot make that case. Compared to where we've been historically, today's market is undoubtedly expensive. So that's the bad news. Uh, but the good news is valuations have been elevated for so long that I think most observers have come to believe that we are now at a generally higher level of valuations. We're never going to go back to those dirt cheap levels that our parents and our grandparents saw. It just simply isn't going to happen. And I think one of the reasons for that is that the world today seems like a far safer place than it did 40, 50, 60 years ago. Um, I know we have, you know, political battles. I know we have military battles, but the degree of stability economically, politically, militarily is far greater than it was in generations past. And because people feel safer, they're more comfortable taking risk. And I think that's mm -hmm. what's driving this gradual rise in valuations. But, but there is a price to be paid, and the price is this. If you start from higher valuations, all else being equal, future returns are likely to be lower. Uh, right. Historically, we've seen stocks outpace inflation by maybe seven percentage points a year. Going forward, I suspect it will be more like four or five percentage points. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, as, as we know, as things become less risky or a little bit safer, the premium return on those assets should be less. And uh, I... I think that leads very well into the topic of, well, if, if valuations here in the U.S. are, from a historical standpoint, higher when you look at a price-to-book ratio or price-to-earnings, and thus the expected returns going forward should be less, one of the things that I want to talk 
with you about after we go to the news here is what about the rest of the world? Because obviously the U.S. has been a great market in the last five, six years. But when you go back during the so-called lost decade from 2000 up through 2009, it was the international markets in the U.S., you know, basically went, you know, went nowhere. So what we're going to do is let's take our first break. When we come back, uh, why don't you share with us a little bit about what you think about international investing and if you think that makes sense for the typical investor, how much should we actually consider when we look at our overall portfolio? How much, if it doesn't make sense to invest overseas, how much might that be? So, all right, let's take our first break. When we come back, we'll pick right back up with Jonathan and we're gonna talk with him about, does international investing make sense if US stock valuations are above average? And if so, how much? We'll be right back. A lot of financial advisors won't want you to hear what we say. This is the financial show that represents you, not Wall Street. This is Financial Freedom with Tim Decker on WHP 580. Welcome back. Tim Decker here with you talking any and all things financial. If it's important to you, it is important to me. And again, thank you for making us part of your Saturday morning. We're honored to have with us a special guest and good friend of mine, Mr. Jonathan Clements. And Jonathan, right before the break, uh, you and I had briefly conversed about the above average, uh, from a historical perspective, valuations that exist currently in the U.S. markets, albeit, uh, as you and I both know, the valuations um, should never be a reason or a temptation to cause someone to time markets, although they can be very helpful um, as a tool in uh, uh, looking out and ca calculating into your projections reasonable and conservative expected returns. But with that having been said, uh, share with us, I know when you and I were talking over, over dinner, uh, ironically, you and I, uh, both have a very similar uh, percentage exposure with almost half of our personal portfolio now uh, invested internationally. But share with our listeners why you think having some international exposure makes sense, but the amount as to how much one might have obviously is always dictated by your personal tolerance for risk and your objectives and all that. So, Tim, historically, when people have thought about building portfolios here in the U.S., what they've done is they've said, okay, I'm going to start with U.S. stocks because those are my engine of growth. That's where I'm going to get the really good returns, and then I'm going to figure out how I'm going to diversify it. So you go back to the 1980s um, when I started in this business, and uh, financial experts would, tip, would say, okay, you know, U.S. stocks are your engine of growth. Maybe we'll put 10 or 20% of your money abroad. Um, and then also, of course, add in some bonds, depending on where you are in your life cycle and your tolerance for risk. Over the years since then, the percentage that financial experts have suggested that people allocate abroad has, has steadily risen. 
and I think there are a number of uh, reasons for that. Um, just to give you a benchmark, um, at Vanguard Group, the country's largest mutual fund company, in their mm-hmm. target date retirement funds, they now allocate 40% of the stock market money to foreign stocks. So that's been it represents a huge shift in the way we think about it, uh, investing. And what's driving this um, in part is that instead of starting with U.S. stocks and saying, what should I add to diversify it? People are starting with something called the global market portfolio. Mm-hmm. And essentially, mm-hmm. the global market portfolio is the portfolio that reflects everything in the world that you can invest in. And roughly speaking, that everything in the world that you can invest in consists of four parts. It's a quarter in U.S. stocks, a quarter in foreign stocks, a quarter in U.S. bonds, and a quarter in foreign bonds. So if you were going to build a portfolio that looked exactly like what everybody else in the world collectively owns, that's what you would own. And uh, a number of people, um, including myself, have started to take that as the yardstick you know, against which they compare their portfolio. And that has driven me to put substantially more of my portfolio abroad. So today, you know, for the money I have in stocks, roughly half is in the U.S. and half is in foreign stocks. And in terms of the portions in foreign stocks, um, I have something of an overweighting in emerging markets. Mm-hmm. Mostly this is driven by, the, by this notion of the global market portfolio, that I want a portfolio that looks like what everybody else owns. But there are really two other considerations that I think are important. One is valuations are so much more attractive abroad than they are here in the U.S. Um, And that means that it's, you know, it's just super compelling to invest abroad. You have to remember, to get a bargain, you have to buy something that's a little bit smelly. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, U.S. stocks and the U.S. economy smell like roses right now. Everybody thinks things are great here. People do not think things are great in Europe. They do not think things are great in Japan. And they get super nervous when they think about investing in emerging markets. And that Mm -hmm. means that you're going to get much more attractive valuations there. And while valuations don't determine whether stocks are going to go up or down this week or next week or even the next year, they are one of the biggest determinants of long-run returns. Yeah. um, One of the things that I – mentioned on the show to uh, our listeners two weeks ago is the following. When a human sees an asset class declining, we see the risk rising while the opposite is also true. When an asset class is rising, human nature says risk is declining. And I think that ties right into the valuation story. I mean, people... People talk about all the time of, you know, yeah, you want to buy when things are low. Well, when it comes to investing in stocks, and when you think about stocks throughout the world, when are stock prices low? The only time stock prices are low is when news is not great. When news is great and the markets are going up in that certain area, the valuation and the bargains are not there. But because of fear... Because of a human's fear, when the bargains are there, which means the news is bad, I mean, that's when the best bargains are there. It's so difficult for the average investor on their own to 
to either rebalance into those areas or actually, as you were just talking about, to consider potentially increasing your exposure. Your yeah, thoughts like on to, that? Yeah, well, I'd like to um, uh, sort of add two thoughts to this. Uh, when I think back over my investing lifetime, which has been you know, a little over three decades, there have been three great bubbles. And I would imagine that most of your listeners can name two of them with great ease. And that we are mm-hmm. talking about the housing bubble in the early 2000s yep. and the tech stock bubble in the late 1990s. But there was another bubble that was even bigger than either of those two. And that was the yes, bubble sir. in Japanese stocks in the 1980s. Japanese stocks rose so much that Japan had a stock market that was worth more than the U.S. market by the time we got to 1989. Mm -hmm. In the years since, Japanese stocks have basically been in a 30-year bear market. Japanese stocks today are 43% below where they stood in 1989. Didn't they top out out in 89 or 90 around 40,000? What, now the Nikkei's around 21 or something? Your, your memory is very good, Tim. The uh, Tokyo stock market peaked right at the end of year in 1989 with the Nikkei 225 index at almost 39,000. Okay. So you think about that. That it, If you had been a Japanese investor who had kept most of their money at home, had invested heavily in the Japanese stock market, today, three decades later, you would be down 43%. Now, I'm not predicting this is happening to, going to happen to the U.S. market. You know, the craziness in Japan in the 1980s was far greater than any of the excesses we see here in the U.S. today. Nonetheless, nonetheless, it points out the huge risk of having all of your money in a single stock market. It's highly unlikely the U.S. market would suffer a decline like that. But what if the U.S. stock market was a poor-performing market for the next decade, and you had all of your money in U.S. stocks? That strikes me as a distinct possibility, a real risk, and the way you address that risk is to diversify. That just brings me to the second thing I'll mention. It's just sort of a fun fact. Today, the U.S. stock market accounts for 52% of world's stock market capitalization. 52%. Right. But the U.S. economy, the U.S. economy only accounts for 25% of world economic output. So we're 25% of world economic output, but we're 52% of world stock market value. Now, there are a number of reasons why those numbers shouldn't necessarily be aligned, but it does indicate just how much enthusiasm there is for U.S. stocks. Yeah, and, and incidentally... If you think of and you were to calculate the Nikkei going from 39,000, 40,000, the end of 89, and now down to 21,000, if that's roughly a 43% decline, that's not even taking into account inflation. Yeah, figure in inflation, and your results would be far worse. But Tim, yep. look on the bright side. Think of the tax losses you would have. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> that's right. That's good. But, uh, you know, the, 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 in our clients' portfolios, 
years ago, we had about a 20% target uh, international exposure. Over the years, for the very reasons you and I have discussed on numerous occasions as well as now, as the valuations in international markets, uh, developed markets are better than the U.S., but as you said, and I totally concur, emerging markets have probably the most attractive valuations. Overall, we have increased our clients' allocations to international to roughly about 35 now, I did mention that, like yourself, I have as much as 50% international and a pretty good chunk in emerging markets. But as you know and I know, what you and I will do with our investments is not necessarily what others should do with theirs. And one of the big concerns that I have and why we've moderated our client's exposure is something called tracking error. Can you kind of share your thoughts on that? Or sometimes I call it TV risk. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly where my mind was going. If you watch the evening news, you know, often they'll report, you know, what happened to the Dow Jones Industrial Average that day or what happened to the Standard Poor's 500 stock index. You know, those are indexes of big blue chip U.S. companies. But if you have a portfolio that includes a substantial investment in smaller U.S. company stocks, if you have a portfolio that has a substantial investment in foreign stocks, including emerging markets, your portfolio's performance is not going to be like the S&P 500, and it's not going to be like the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Now, some years, you're going to be really happy about that because <laughs> thanks to those small stocks and thanks to those foreign stocks, you're going to do better than the Dow Jones Industrial Average or the S&P 500. But there will be years where it doesn't work in your favor. And if, if that is what you expect to get, you know, that's what your neighbors are talking about, and you're really zeroed in on that, then having a globally diversified portfolio, even if it makes long-run investment sense, and even if it gives you a safer, more diversified portfolio, may not make, be a smart investment if you're going to start selling at the worst possible time. And that right. is when tracking error really comes back to bite you, because you get unnerved because you're lagging the S&P 500 and the Dow because you have these foreign stocks and these small stocks. You bail out, and I can almost guarantee you, the day you decide to sell, a year later, you're going to regret it. Right, and that is exactly the environment that we are in right now. The last several years, large-cap U.S. growth stocks have been on a tear. International markets have lagged, especially emerging over the last five, six years. And now is the time when people might be most tempted to say, why do I need international stocks? All I need is the S&P 500 index, and I mean, look what it's doing. And all we have to do, Jonathan, is take them back a little bit further and say, okay, let's look at, again, the lost decade from, you know, 2000 through 2009. And during that time period, small cap stocks, international, were the ones that did very well while the large cap U.S. basically were flat. So what you said is nail on. Okay, we're going to take our last break. When we come back, Jonathan, um, I'd like you to just, uh, in our last segment, share with 
with us in your many, many years of working with a lot of individual investors yourself, what would you say might be three to five of the most common and biggest mistakes that you see investors make? Okay, we're going to take our break. Don't go anywhere. I'm Tim Decker. This is Financial Freedom. We'll be right back. If you have a question about your finances or your financial future, give us a call right now at 540-0580. Providing you with the information and answers to gain your financial independence. This is Financial Freedom on WHP 580. Once again, here's Tim Decker. All right, welcome back to Financial Freedom. Uh, on the air in central Pennsylvania here, now going on almost 23 years. It's an honor and a privilege to be able to provide you with ongoing, straightforward advice designed to look out for your best interests. Okay, we are going to pick back up uh, in our final segment here with our very special guest, Jonathan Clements. And before I bring Jonathan back up, let me again remind you, make it a point to visit his website, hum HumbleDollar.com. HumbleDollar.com. Great information, great blog. And uh, uh, Jonathan is one of the few financial uh, uh, professionals out there that I completely, completely have confidence in. And he does a lot of great work in his effort to educate consumers. All right, Jonathan, before the break, I had, had asked you if you'd be so kind in our wrap-up here. Can you share with us... Uh, just a few of the most common uh, mistakes that you've seen investors make after working with many, many over the years, as well as any words of wisdom, any you know important points that you would like to make that can help investors as well. I don't know whether we'll be able to get them through them all, but you had you had emailed me Tim with this question: you know, What are the sort of five biggest mistakes investors make, and also? What would be five specific pieces of advice that I would offer to listeners? So let's, let's think about the mistakes. And I would say the number one mistake that people make is simply not getting started. You know, we spend all this time focused on today, and we spend so little time thinking about our future self. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the odds are our future self is one day going to be our current self. Uh, <laughs> you know, if from your chances of reaching retirement age are about 90% from birth. So, you know, go back 100 years and the odds were much worse. You would have a very good chance you would never reach retirement age. Yeah, Today, yep. from birth, your chances of reaching retirement age are 90%. You will almost certainly one day be retired. You will be that person, and you should start to make financial preparations to be that person. So that's number Excellent one. Point. Get mm -hmm. started. And two, and I'm sure you will uh, back me up on this one, Tim, the number one attribute of financially successful people is that they are great savers. You don't have to be a rock star when it comes to investing. You don't have to buy all these complicated investment products. But if you're a great saver, good things are going to happen. All the people I know who have managed to accumulate seven-figure portfolios have got there the honest way. By putting away one dollar after another, month after month, year after year, you've got to be a saver. That's yes, two. sir. 
Mm-hmm. Three, you should not imagine that you know stuff that isn't knowable. <laughs> you <laughs> don't know which investments are going to do best over the next year. You don't know which way the stock market is headed. You don't know what's going to happen to interest rates. So stop trying to run your financial life based on predictions that you are incapable of making and nobody is capable of making. So that's three. Four, uh, when it comes to your financial goals, do not deal with them consecutively. Deal with them concurrently. And what do I mean by that? I see this phenomenon all the time. People get into their 30s and they're like, okay, okay, we got to buy a house. So they save and save for the house down payment. And finally, finally they buy the house. So now they're 40. They're like, okay, okay, what's next? <laughs> oh yeah, we got to put the kids through college. So they save and save for college. They write the big tuition checks. They get the nasty little brats through college. Finally, they're 50. And they're like, okay, what's next? Oh, yeah, retirement. Oh, shoot. Because it's too late. Yeah, 10 or yeah. 15 years simply isn't enough time to save enough for retirement. If you want to be able to retire in comfort, you've got to make it a priority from the day you enter the workforce. So don't deal with your financial goals consecutively. Deal with them concurrently. Good point. I, Good point. My final piece of advice is a very specific piece of advice, but um, for the vast majority of Americans, I actually believe it's one of the best pieces of financial advice they can get, which is, you know, don't take Social Security early. You know, if you've done a lousy job of saving for retirement, if, you know, you never really got around to buying a house, whatever it is. If you delay Social Security to get that larger monthly check, you will at least have a half-decent shot at being somewhat comfortable in retirement. Mm. By contrast, taking Social Security early because you think the system's going to go bankrupt or because you imagine that you know, you're going to die tomorrow, you'll regret that decision. Social Security is the best income stream most of us will ever get. It is government-guaranteed. It's at least partially tax-free. You'll get it for the rest of your life, and it's indexed to inflation. You want right, as right. much of that income as you can. So if you don't do anything else and you get to retirement age, delay Social Security and find some way to cover the bills until you claim Social Security, probably at, preferably at age 70. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's amazing how many people blindly make that Social Security decision without sitting down and having an objective analysis done weighing the pros and cons. And I think there's, I think you hit the nail on the head. That's one of the decisions that I've seen that so many people make because all oh, my friends took it early. Somebody said they should t take it early, you know, and, and, and I, I, I think your point on that is very well t taken. And that's why, you know, I always urge people you know, what is good for you is not necessarily what your neighbors have done or what, you, you know, what your family has done. Everybody is unique, and you deserve to look at your overall scenario from a unique standpoint. Um, I had mentioned in my email that, that I firmly believe that successful investing is 1% intellectual and about 99% temperamental. 
What's your thoughts on that, Jonathan? I think attitude is almost everything. I totally agree with you, Tim. And you know, particularly in sort of in two different senses. You know, one is this ability to say, you've got to be able to put off spending so you can sock away money. And two, when it comes to investing, you have to be able to sit tight through the rough times so that you get those great long-run returns. And really, in both cases, we're talking about the same thing, which is you right. absolutely need to take the long view. You can't be focused solely on today. All right, Jonathan. Well, hey, we are out of time. Thank you again so much. As always, my friend, give my best to Lucinda and all of you. Please visit Jonathan's website, humbledollar.com. I assure you it will be well worth your time. Have an awesome day. We'll be with you next week. Take care, everyone.